If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to uh, Mark chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 35 through 45. It's the word of the Lord. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, and said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and he touched him. And he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But the leper went out again and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in the desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, your word is rich and true and alive and beautiful. It can be hard at times, but by your spirit who works within the heart of your people, you take what is complex and your spirit who wrote the word gives meaning and understanding to the word that your people might respond in faith and obedience and worship and in awe. And we desire that this morning. I pray that we would not only be hearers, but doers of your word. Would you do it uh, for the glory of Christ, we pray, amen. So in 2006, the FAA had to ground all of the DC-10s because the flight, uh, because one engine fell off a plane and the result was 213 people who tragically lost their lives. And the reason this happened uh, was a result of ignored maintenance. That if you know anything about uh, airplane engines, then you know that there is a, a cycle, there's a rhythm to it that you, you fly it and then you have to ground it and you have to service it and then you fly it again for so many flights and you ground it and you service it, that there's a rhythm to airplane engines. And when you break that rhythm, the results are catastrophic. Rhythms are important. I mean, here in the life of a church, like there's a rhythm. We come here on the Lord's Day on a Sunday and then we, we, we scatter and then we gather again and we scatter and we gather again and we scatter There's a rhythm, right? A rhythm to being a part of a healthy church. There's a rhythm to your own life that tomorrow morning you're probably going to wake up and do the same thing you did last Monday morning. You're going to wake up and have a cup of coffee and take a shower and get your kids off to school and make up the bed and drive to work. And you're probably going to drive to work the same way you drive to work every day. You're going to leave work maybe a little later, but you'll go home and you'll go back and re-enter in your home and have a meal and you'll start over again, right? There's a rhythm, right, to life. A rhythm is everywhere. The question that I want to put before us is, does the coming kingdom of Christ 
Does it introduce new rhythms in the lives of those who say we love and belong to Christ? Does the coming kingdom of Christ that Jesus has himself introduced, should that break into our own lives and maybe modify our rhythms and the way that we do life and the way that we live? And if you look at our text, I think the answer is yes. That what, one part of the way to look at this text is to look at the rhythm of Christ. How did Jesus spend his time? How did he uh, live his days upon the earth? Is there something that we can learn from it? I think so, right? I think the first thing we see that's important in our text is this rhythm of privacy and prayer. That if you're taking notes, I'm making the case to you that, that privacy away from your children, away from your husband, away from your employees, away from any other person, withdrawing and spending time with your father in prayer, that it is an integral rhythm to your and my spiritual well-being. And you see it, right? I want to put it in its context that, that it's what I love about Mark's gospel. It's really fast-paced. And so if you look at the section right before this, which we talked about last week, that Jesus had a really long and rough day. If you go back up to the section right before it, that the first thing Jesus does is he calls disciples. He calls uh, Simon, who is here in the text called Peter, and then Andrew, his brother. Then he goes a bit further and he calls, calls this guy named uh, James and John, who were brothers, uh, the, the children of Zebedee. And he calls these four disciples and immediately they go into Capernaum and he enters into a synagogue. And, and the, the way the text is written, it reads as if Jesus went in there pretty early. Like he's kind of the first person there. He goes into the synagogue and he preaches and teaches. And there's a man who is possessed by a demon and Jesus heals this man. He leaves there and immediately goes uh, into Peter's house and Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And so Jesus goes in there and he touches her and he heals her and has a meal with her. And all the while, Jesus' fame is spreading and spreading and spreading so that you get down to verse 32 of chapter 1. And notice what it says. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed. And so notice the phrase all, all who were sick and all who were oppressed. They came to Jesus and the whole city was gathered together at the door and he healed many who were sick. He didn't say all. He says he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. So, so you get this image that this day before the day that we're talking about now, it was busy. Now, think with me. Like Jesus is fully God, but he's also truly human. And if you read John 4, when Jesus was ministering in Jerusalem and was making his way to Galilee, it says that he was tired. He was weary from his journey. And so he stopped at a, a well in Samaria to get water. So the, 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 the Son of God, who is also a human, gets tired. He needs sleep. He needs food. He's in a boat, and he falls asleep with his disciples around him because he's been faithfully serving. And so what does it feel like if you have been up before the sun up calling disciples? Because fishermen went out in the morning really early. You went to a synagogue and you preach and teach. You left the synagogue and went and healed your homeboy's mother. And then word about you went everywhere. So people brought the whole city to your house. And even into the night, you stayed up healing people. How do you feel the next morning? Exhausted. 
And if that's me, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to say, look, y'all got to go. It is late. And if you keep staying through the night, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn the air conditioning down to 68. And when I climb in the bed, I'm going to pull the covers over me. And I'm going to tell my children and my wife, do not wake me up until I get up tomorrow. Right? And when the alarm clock wakes up, I'm hitting snooze. That's what I'm doing if I had the day that Jesus just had. And he's a human. Do not discount that. Lay that on top of what Mark says he does. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. Let that wash over you. He's tired and weary and drained. And yet he gets up before the sun comes up. And he's back out to be with the Lord. Think about that. And he can't even stay there long, right? That I think the reason Mark is telling us that, that, that all who were sick and were oppressed were brought to Jesus But Mark also says he healed many. He could have used all, but he didn't. He says Jesus healed many. Now, this is what this means. This means that everyone who was sick was at the door, and Jesus healed many, but many is not all. And therefore, some people who were out there the night before who wanted healing did not get healing. And guess what they did? Guess what happened? They didn't go away. They went home for the night. But notice, they, they ready to roll. Like, Jesus, you forgot about us yesterday, but baby, we're here today. Can you pick up where you left off yesterday? And that's why, look at, what, look at what Peter says. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. Jesus, everyone is looking for you. So take this in. Here's how this probably happened. Jesus gets up before the disciples gets up, and he's out. The town shows up at the door where Jesus was sleeping, looking for Jesus, putting pressure on the disciples. The disciples go to try to find where Jesus is in the house, and Jesus isn't there. And the townspeople are saying, hey, where is he? And then an all-out search mission starts. And Peter is the ringleader. Peter is the leader. And so Peter is speaking for the people. Can you think about the pressure? Jesus, you didn't heal me. Jesus, you forgot about me. Jesus, what about my son? Jesus, 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 right? Humans can be horrible masters. That if you always do what everyone else on the planet wants you to do for them when they want you to do it, you will never be and do what you are supposed to do. And well-intending people will push their agendas on your plate and think that they own the whole plate, right? That this is a pressure. This is the pressure of being human. And here's the thing. This is Jesus' life, if you think about it. Jesus, go ride into Jerusalem on a war horse and overthrow Rome. And Jesus says, no, we're not doing that. I'm going to ride in on a donkey and I'm going to come in to be crucified. Well, Jesus, if you're the son of God, save yourself. Get off the cross No, I'm going to stay up here and die because there is no other way for mankind to be saved. Well, Jesus, if you're God, then then, then send your angels that let them come in glory and flex their muscle. No, it was destined for me to die and to die for the sins of the people. If you look at the the person of Jesus in the Gospels, you're going to always see this. 
that he's always marching to a different beat. The people want this, this thing, and Jesus says, no, I know what you need. But the pressure is real. The temptation to please is real. Now, notice how Jesus responds to these people and this pressure. Look at his response. Jesus, everyone is looking for you. In verse 38, and he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. You hear that? They want you to stay right here. And they want you to keep on healing right here. And Jesus says, no, I'm not staying right here. We're going to the next towns. And I'm going to go there and preach. So let me get this right. You want me to stay and heal. And I'm telling you, I'm going to leave and preach. You, you, you get that? Like he knows where he is supposed to be. And he knows what he is supposed to be doing. And both of those things are undermining what the people want him to do in the passage. Now, here's the question. Where does this clarity and this courage come from? Where does it come from? In the face of the noise and the voices and legitimately good things, where does the clarity and courage to say, no, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm sorry, but I'm going to live with disappointing you. Where does that clarity come from? Look at the text. Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place to pray in verse 35. And notice his response in verse 38. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach, for that is why I came out. Here's a clue when you're reading Mark. He's going to bookend. He's going to put a word at the top and put a word at the bottom. And what's in the middle is going to be shaped by that word. In other words, think about it. He's, he gets up before they are up, and he goes out here to go and pray. And then they come out there where he is to interrupt him with their agenda. And notice what he says. I came out here. And therefore, because I came out here to pray, I now know where I'm supposed to be, and it is not here with you. You see that? You got to see what he's doing with vocabulary here. That is why he went out. He went out and got out early to hear God so that when the crowds come and the voices come, he knows exactly where and what he's supposed to be doing. You see it in the text? Now, we could talk about prayer in, in a numerous different ways, but if we're going to be faithful to this particular text, we have to ask the question, how is prayer functioning in this particular text with what we see in the text. And what we see in this text is that Jesus is pressured and confused and tired, and he goes out into the wilderness to pray, and in, the, in, the, in, in going out and communing with the Father, he leaves that place with courage and clarity. So here's what he's showing us about prayer. When we think about prayer, most of us think about this posture, right? I'm down and my prayers are going up, right? 
What Jesus is showing us is another way that prayer works. God is up and he comes down. What does God say? If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask, make, 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 make the request, and the Father of heaven will do what? He will open up the gates and, and pour it back down. Prayer is not a one-way street where we're laying out our petitions to go up, that the way you see prayer working in this particular passage, it's also wisdom coming down. You see it? I can think about points in my own life, and I'm sure you all could, where you're torn. And you got the voices of people, and it's turned up really loud. You need to do this. You need to be this. You need to do this. You need to go there. You need, and you get this, you need, you need, you need, you need, you need. And you're in this place of like, man, I'm confused. I'm hurt. I'm broken. I'm tired. And, and here's what one way that prayer works. One way that God uses prayer is to turn the voices of humans down. To make sure that you hear the voice of the one that truly matters. And that's his. Albert, do you really want to quit your job? And go to school. And I got friends and family members. You're crazy. Why would you do that? Do you really want to go pastor in the PCA? Do you know what Presbyterian is? No, I don't. Do you really want to go and give RTS money? Do you really want to leave a campus ministry that you've loved to pastor a church, right? And there are voices that say this and this and this, but there is nothing like withdrawing from people and listening to your father who delights to speak back to you through his word and by his spirit, God speaks. He speaks. He reveals, he discloses, he reveals, he wants to show you. And Jesus has won this, this access that we now have. It's not because we're righteous and we pray good prayers. This access to the throne of God, where the heart of God is bent towards ours and the mouth of God speaks to us, it's been won by another, and his name is Jesus. You think about this, that Jesus started his earthly ministry when he was baptized by the Spirit. And when you read the Gospel of John, what does Jesus say? I do what my Father tells me, present tense. If you look at the person, the human of Jesus, the human man, like he's walking through ministry. Father, what is it that you want me to do? And the Father's like, I'm going to show you. You want me to go here? Yes, go there. Do you believe that the Father communes with you? And do you have a place and space in your life where you're silent before the Lord and you read and you meditate and you wait upon the Lord? That's the rhythm that Jesus is inviting you into, believer. And he only invites us into this rhythm of prayer because he hears and he speaks back. 
That's the first thing. The second thing you see in this passage is the rhythm of public life and pity. That, that Jesus does not stay in the wilderness in formal prayer all day long. He actually moves back into the public sphere. Look at verse 39. And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. He didn't preach to rocks nor computer screens or build a virtual internet ministry. He actually spent hours and hours and hours and hours with real people. You would find him at weddings. You would find him at funerals. You would find him at the market shopping. You would find him at birthday parties. You would find him at tax collector booths. You would find him in a temple. You find him on a boat. Like, like you name a place, and Jesus was there. He didn't just stay apart from the world. He didn't just stay in Bible studies all day long and in prayer closets all day long. He actually stepped out of that stuff and lived in a messy and broken world. He was not a monk who lived in a monastery. He was acquainted with sinners. He was public. Now, I want you to think about it, right? Because I think this rhythm of in and out, of communion with God and then back into a messy world, isn't that the way we understand the gospel? Is not the gospel this right here, that God has been existing in eternal community and friendship with one another forever? And it's perfect, it's beautiful, it's holy, and it's predictable. I know that there is no sin here. It will never breach here because we're holy and righteous, right? Now, that's one side of it, but is not the gospel also this holy and righteous God chooses? And I mean he chooses to leave what was predictable and holy and safe to enter into a world where he could actually be crucified. The gospel is in and then out. The Lord of glory has stepped into the messiness of our world. And you see Jesus doing the same thing. He's communing with the Father, enjoying that which he has known forever, and then coming out to engage. And here's what you see, that, that in the path of obedience, and this is important, in the path of hearing in private and communing in private, in the path of obeying and actually going out throughout Galilee to preach and teach, in that path of obeying, guess who stumbles in his path? A leper. And you got to connect this. He is obeying the Lord by coming out and going out to preach. In that path, a leper stumbles in Jesus's way. Now, we know he's a leper because it says it. And, and it's not just that he's telling us a leper. This leper has been pronounced as a leper. In Jesus's day, if you were a leper and you had a spot on your arm, here's what you would do. You would see a spot and you would look and you would have to go to a priest. And the priest would flip over to Leviticus 13, 14, and 15. And the priest would do a, a thorough examination. Okay, is that, is, that, is that sore white or green? Is your hair cuticle, is it white or green? Does it break the surface or is it just, just on the skin? Is this, I mean, he had a checklist in the Bible to tell you if this man was leprous. And if this man was not leprous, then hey, brother, you're good. Go back. That's just a sore, right? 
But if it was leprous, you were declared ceremonially unclean. You had to wear a leprous garment. And guess what? You were kicked out of fellowship with God's people. You had to go and live alone. And whenever you walked, you have to walk just like this. Unclean, unclean, so that your saliva does not get on someone else. You had to announce it publicly so that no one mistakenly runs into you that that is the man who stumbles upon Jesus' path. He is unclean. He is defiled. He's been living in isolation as long as his skin has been diseased. That's the man who stumbles upon Jesus. Now, we might look at this as a coincidence, but I want you to focus in real right here. Eugene Peterson has a book, and it's called Working the Angles. It has nothing to do with the book of Mark, right? But it has something to do with prayer, time, and providence, right? So these three things. Here is what he says. When most Americans wake up, we wake up to an alarm clock that rips us from our bed or our phone, and we immediately sort of look at our to-do list, and we might not have one kind of on a calendar, but it's running through our minds. I got to do this and this and this and this and this. And then we go about our day, and then our day ends, right? Not when the sun goes down, but when we turn the lights off in our house. That's when we're done with our day. Not by the natural light outside, but by the artificial lights in our homes. That's how, and then we start over again. He says, if you're Jewish, you don't live to that rhythm. He says the first thing, Jews understand that the day is the basic unit of God's creative work. That's the first thing. It's not the basic day of your creative work. We have a role to play, but it's not our day. It's God's day. Second thing, evening is the beginning of the day. In the evening, we quit our activity and we go to sleep. Third, as we sleep, God begins his work. He develops the covenant. We rest, but God never slumbers, never sleeps, and God is working, moving, planning, orchestrating. When we sleep, we get out of the way for a while, and God does marvelous things that we cannot comprehend like this. The moon is marking its season. The stars turn their courses. The lion roars for its prey. Earthworms are aerating the earth, and the proteins in your, mu- in your body, they're repairing your muscles. And all of this is happening when you're up making the sun move? No. Are you making proteins rejuvenate your own muscles? No. You're asleep. And that's God's time to work. Which makes way for the fourth thing. And when we awake... God calls us to enjoy and share and develop the work that he has already initiated. We wake up to a world that we did not sustain when we were asleep. We wake up to a salvation that we did not earn and maintain. We, and when we wake up, here is the fundamental question that we ought to be asking ourselves. How will you, Lord, Use my obedience and service of you this day that you have already prepared in advance. You see that? 
That's a totally different way to live. We live thinking that we have the day and it's up for us to get things moving. And, and, and he's saying, no, while you're asleep, God is getting the things moving for the next day. And you wake up asking the Lord, how will you use my obedience to you this day? And therefore, could it be? And we believe this about God's providence. Our confession of faith says this about providence. We believe that God, the creator of all things, he upholds and directs and disposes and governs all creatures and their actions from the greatest to the lowest. He exercises his most wise and holy providence to the praise of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. That is chapter 6 of the Westminster Confession. Could it be that as Jesus laid asleep the night before, getting his muscles rejuvenated, that God was working over here in the heart of the leper? If you believe in providence, you have to believe that. You have to believe that somehow, some way, as Jesus rested, the Father was not resting. He was stirring in the heart of the leper to make him get up the next day and want to go meet with Jesus. Now, how did this happen? I'm going to use imagination here. I, I don't know. But let's just say the leper is married and he has a wife and he has children. And let's just say that maybe his wife and his daughter heard about this healer. And just maybe his wife and his daughter went and saw it with their own eyes. And just maybe the daughter says, well, mommy, do you think that Jesus can heal daddy? And just maybe the daughter goes to the leper colony in the place of the wilderness and she can't touch her dad. She can't touch him and so she has to scream or she has to write a note dad we found someone who can heal you and maybe he's hearing her well where is he what's his name how do you know and maybe they talk about it and now he can't sleep he hears about it my baby girl I can see her again my baby girl I can touch her again my wife we can be together again I don't have to stay out here in isolation forever and maybe just maybe as Jesus slept that night the leper could not sleep because his father was at work Preparing and orchestrating and ordaining and stirring. So that next morning, the leper is like, I'm going to find him. I'm going to track him down and I'm going to fall at his feet. Do you believe that God prepares these type of encounters for you and I to have in the public sphere of life. And it's not a coincidence. It is your God working and orchestrating things that you can't see so that when we are out of our prayer closets and out of Bible study and engaging a world around us, that your father has already done the work of making sure 
that you're late. You're late. You're going to miss this light right here today, and you're going to miss that next light because I got an appointment for you this afternoon, and if you make this light and this light, you won't get it. Do you actually think the, that, 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 that the stoplights are arbitrary? Do you actually believe that the traffic is arbitrary? It is not. Nothing is. Because God wants his people to come in the path of people like the man in this passage. And here's what you see. God doesn't just stir in the heart of the leper. God also stirs in the heart of Jesus. Did you notice this interaction that this man comes to Jesus and he says, he implores, he, he kneels. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. And notice what it says. The man didn't say, can you? He says, no, I know you can because somebody told me you can. And I believe you can. And I'm going to trust you can because the Father has given me faith that you can. It's not a matter of power. It's a matter of willingness. And so Jesus, this man goes before Jesus. And look at the text. Moved with pity. And if you have the NIV, your, your Bible is going to say, moves with indignation. The reason the ESV says pity and the NIV says indignation is because there are, are competing, um, there are different manuscripts. Some manuscripts have that word angry or indignant, and some manuscripts have pity. We can talk about it privately if you want to ask me where I think it is. I don't think it's that important. I think if Jesus is angry, it's the same anger he feels when Lazarus has died. He's angry at the world and the brokenness of it. And if it's pity, it's still pity that this man is not whole. He's not living in communion. Notice his response. He was moved with pity. This could have played out differently. Jesus could have saw this man, and this man is saying, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. Jesus could have said, get away from me. You will defile me. He could have saw the man coming and jetted this other way, just like we do sometimes when the broken are around us. We kind of go the long way home, or we in our car, and we will not look over there because buddy got this sign, right? Jesus could have done all of that. He's human. But it says, no, he was moved with pity. He looks at this man as the father looks at this man. And then he does the unimaginable. Notice as he says, I will. He reached out and touched him. And then Jesus says, I will and be clean. And then the leprosy left him. Now read this text slowly. The man is not healed with the touch. Look at your text. He's healed when Jesus says, be clean. The word of Jesus made the leprosy leave. Why did Jesus touch him? He didn't have to. This man hadn't been touched, people. No human touch, no hugs, no holding hands, no face-to-face -face deep intimate friendships. He's been on an island 
And the first thing Jesus does is not rid him of his leprosy. The first thing Jesus does, bring it in, brother. I'm going to put my hands on you. You need touch. And you need community. And you need to know that you're not forgotten. That's the first miracle. The second one is he speaks it, and by speaking it, the man is healed. And notice what happens after that. Jesus tells the man, in verse 43, he gives him a strong warning. Do not tell anyone, and the man doesn't listen. He tells everybody. He says, rather, go show yourself to the priest and offer sacrifices to, that Moses commanded for your cleansing. Underline that phrase, as a testimony to them. Why did Jesus say that? Because Jesus knew Leviticus. He knew Leviticus 13, 14, and 15. He heals the man and then tells the man, go show yourself to the priest and then offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded you to do. And here is what you have to read when you read the Bible. You can read it when Miriam gets leprosy. You can read it. I won't give you all the passages. The Levites or the priests, they had power to look at Luke, I mean Leviticus 13, 14, and 15, and to look at a leper and, and, and say, hey, this says this, that is not leprosy. Or this says this, that is leprosy. And they had the power to look and declare when leprosy was gone. Look, at, if this has happened, then the leprosy is gone. Now make him offer the sacrifices. You know what the Levites did not have? They did not have the power to heal leprosy. It was a feared disease that outside of a providential intervention of God, you were, you were dead. You were a walking dead man or woman unless God himself intervened. And so when Jesus tells the leper, go show yourself clean to the priest and make a sacrifice to the priest, you know what he was sending a message to them? There is someone here who is greater than the priest. Only God can heal leprosy. This man is healed. This man was healed at my words, and therefore, you know who you're dealing with. I'm God. You see it? Now, back up with me for a minute. Why does this whole encounter happen to begin with? Because Jesus left the prayer closet and engaged the world around him. And so what you ought to hear me saying is that is a rhythm for your life. How do I know? We know thus far that four disciples are with Jesus, right? Peter and his brother, John and another guy named James, their brothers, four disciples. This is the same John who wrote the gospel of John. It's the same John who wrote 1 John. You know, what, you know what John writes in 1 John? 1 John 3.16, listen carefully. This is how we experience and know what love is, that Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And look at verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need but has no pity, 
pity. Same word you see right here, that Jesus looked out with the man with leprosy and he was moved to pity. John says later, if you are out engaging the world and you see your brother or sister in need and you have no pity on him, how can the love of God be in that person? You see that? John is saying, drink deeply of the Lord God and his love for you in private and go public. And when you go public, you will see people in need around you and be moved to pity in the same way that Jesus was moved with pity. If you see your brothers and sisters with needs around you, don't just say, hey, God bless you and go. He actually says what? Anyone has material possessions, give him. That's what you see Jesus doing. He's been drinking deeply of the Father's love. He moves out in public, and there is someone in need. And Jesus says, you know, I can do something about that. This is one of the reasons why, Redeemer, we don't want you to be bogged down with church stuff seven nights a week. We want to make a big deal out of the Lord's day. We want to worship together. We want you connected in some way to growth groups or some affinity group to be cared for. And we want you to find somewhere to serve. We want you to go be on your kids' PTA. We want you to go to Kroger, and we don't want you to click list and pull up and put your list together in advance and you just drive up and yet they walk out and put your groceries in there so that you have no human interaction with anybody. It is so easy to like to, to remove ourselves from having to see people. And what we actually want you to do is to see people. Like go be good employees, go be good bosses, go be good students, go walk in your neighborhood and take walks and meet people. We don't want to fill your day up with church stuff. That's important. We want you to study and know and worship, but we also know that the other important rhythm is that you go out. It's important. It's important. I'm going to close with this last point. How do we do this? How are we motivated to the private life of prayer and the public life of mercy? What compels us? Look, just because this is a rhythm of Jesus and I'm, I think there's a command to live in such a way, it doesn't mean that we do it. Let's do a survey. Who in this room right now would raise your hand and say, you know what, Pastor L? I got this praying thing down, my brother. My bed is never tempting. I get up every morning, and the first question that runs through my mind is, Lord Jesus, how will you use my obedience today? I have never, ever struggled with prayer. Ever since I was a little kid like Jesus, who was eight years old at the temple, that was me, Pastor Ed. When I was eight years old, I was consumed with the zeal of the Lord. Everybody raise your hand if you can say that that is perfectly you. Y'all look at this? You see this? A little baby up there doing it. 
Hey, hey, is that a him or I can't see? Hey, that's a him. Give him a few more years. He ain't going to be doing that. <laughs> Who in this room could say, you know what, Pastor L? I got this compassion thing down pat. I have never had someone broken cross my path, and I did not respond the exact way that Jesus wanted me to. From the time I was a kid, who in this room could raise their hands and say that? No one, right? You see, there's a limit here. I'm telling you to be like Jesus, to emulate these rhythms, but there's a break in the text, and the break in the text is we're not Jesus. The break in the text is, yes, we're following after him and being like him, but we can only do that to a degree. Here's the thing that Jesus does in the text that no human can do. You can't speak to a leper and say, be clean. Your words aren't strong enough. You're not God. You get that? And if you think about it long and hard, we're actually like the leper in the text. You notice these, these three dudes, these four dudes, they show up again in Mark 14 at the end of Jesus' life. The same first four disciples he called. Three of them are in his inner circle. And you remember what's about to happen in Gethsemane? Jesus got the three. He got the three of the four who was with him right here when this happened. He says, look, my soul is tempted. I'm about to be crucified. Can you stay and can you pray for me? And you know what those jokers did? They counted sheep. <laughs> they went to sleep. Not one time, not two times, but three times Jesus came back and found them asleep. And so we also have to approach this text that we're not like Jesus. When he puts us on the spotlight and say, pray and do it, we don't. And when he says, be merciful like me and do it, we won't. And therefore, we have a rotting of the heart, not of the skin. Our hearts have been sickened by our sin, and we are selfish, and we are independent, and we go through life marching to our own beat, and we wake up every morning, and the first voices we hear, it's not the voice of the Lord. It's our bosses and our teachers, and we're tempted to march to that beat. And here's the beautiful thing about leprosy. Only God can heal it. And here is the beautiful thing about the gospel. The leprosy of your heart has been touched by Christ and taken away. Did you notice in this passage that when Jesus touched the leper, the leper went in and proclaimed the, the good news. And you know what happened to Jesus? He was sent out. He couldn't go in. Isn't that the gospel? The gospel says your Savior will touch your guilt and take it away from you so that he will go out into the desolate place and be crucified by the Lord of glory so that you and I can have access in. And if you are in Christ, he has touched you and taken away your guilt. And he has done more than that. He has put his very own spirit in you that is so willing, your spirit in you that is of Christ is so willing to live this way. It is the very same spirit in Jesus. He says, if you're mine, I'm putting it in you. 
and you will be thirsty until you commune with your father. And your life will be dry. You were made to live under his gaze. And you will look at people and CNN and Fox News and MSNBC will not inform how you view broken people. You will view broken people like your father in heaven views broken people. You will look at them with tenderness and compassion and not judgment because that is his spirit living in you. You don't have to do this alone. You can't do it alone. We're like the leper. We need Jesus to touch us. And we need him to take our guilt away. And we need his spirit in us that is willing. And the good news is that he gives it. You're not condemned for your prayerlessness. You're not condemned for your judgment. He has taken that away. But if he has drawn near to you, draw near to him. If he has shown mercy and tenderness to you, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We'll spend forever declaring it. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for our hardness of hearts. Forgiveness for not keeping in step with the Spirit. Cultivate these rhythms, Father, in our hearts by your Spirit that your voice will be the most important voice on the planet and that serving people in the manner in which you call us to will be also important. Do this for Christ's sake. Amen.